gets there. We're going to be looking, continuing in our series on 1 Thessalonians. The title of today's message is A Good Example and a Bad Example. Reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 13 through 16. And for the children and others who may be making tally marks when the key word is spoken, that word is example. And so let's begin by standing to read the Word of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 13 through 14a. For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, You welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea, in Christ Jesus, where you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. And they do not please God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But the wrath has come, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word, things that have been there all along, but which now, Lord, by your spirit, you will illuminate. Help us, Lord, to see these things and what they mean and apply them in our own hearts and in our own lives so that we might walk in the light of your word and live by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're looking today at two groups of people. Paul is speaking of both of them in this passage. One people is a people to be glad for, and another a people to be sad for. Now we need to be a little cautious here, because we're dealing with uh, both the good things that we see in the lives of the Thessalonians, and Paul expresses that in thankfulness uh, for, number one, that they received the Word of God as the Word of God. Number two, they honored the saints who were in Judea, the saints of God, by imitating them. And then number three, they endured persecution faithfully. The second group, the bad example, the sad example, is expressed in his sadness for the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, the socially uh, elite within that community, and that they have rejected the Word of God. Number two, they have persecuted the saints of God. And number three, they will suffer the eternal wrath of God. And the caution that I want to introduce right now is that if we're not careful, we can drift into anti-Semitism. 
because we're dealing with the Jewish people at that time in history. We're not speaking of all Jewish people, certainly not all Jewish people today. We're dealing with a particular group of Jewish leaders in the first century who became rabid in their persecution of the church. And it's important to remind ourselves that the author of this letter was the leader of that persecution. And so this is not anti-Semitism. This is an observation of a group of people who got it wrong, got it really, really wrong. And so as we look at the good things that we see in the lives of the Thessalonian Christians, and we look at the evil things that we see in the lives of this particular group of Jewish leaders and the elite society, uh, these two provide us with a good example and a bad example, one to follow and one to avoid at all costs. And so we begin a church to be thankful for. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 13a, the first part of this verse, Paul writes, for this reason we also thank God without ceasing. And again, we have this idea of praying without ceasing. Paul says he is thankful to God without ceasing. And the practical way in which this is accomplished and can be accomplished by you in your own life is to choose to make every thought that you have a conversation with God rather than a conversation with yourself. So Paul made every thought of the churches that he had planted an ongoing prayer of thanksgiving. Every thought of them was directed to God and expressed as thankfulness to God. To pray without ceasing, as I say, is simply to make every thought a conversation with God rather than with yourself. And so, in your mind, you can talk to God and he hears you. By the way, Satan can't hear your thoughts. God can. And so you can safely uh, commune with God without worrying about someone else overhearing. But you know you can also pray out loud. And we are told in, in various passages of God's Word that it's a good thing to exalt God with your lips and with your tongue, to, to cry out to God. And uh, this is something that sometimes we become a little shy about. Uh, Jesus tells us to go into your prayer closet and pray. And the assumption there is you're praying out loud in that prayer closet. Otherwise, you wouldn't need to go into a prayer closet. And so don't, don't make every prayer just simply something that happens in your head, but let it express itself uh, with your lips and your tongue to confess the Lord Jesus, to express thankfulness to him and to God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so when people see you walking down the street and you know, nowadays with all the earbuds and the, and the, uh, the phone uh, adaptions and so on, you see people walking down. The, it used to be that you see somebody and you say, oh, they're talking to themselves. That must be a person with some mental disorder. But now you never know. It could be, they could be talking on the phone, right? And uh, we need to leave open the category that we're talking to God as we walk down the street, which is not crazy at all. It's the sanest thing that you can do. So Paul rejoices in the Lord whenever he thinks of this particular church. And what is he rejoicing over? Well, he tells us, first of all, that they received the word of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13b, 
because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. The word of God, though delivered by men, was not the word of men, but rather was the word of God. Uh, This is a very important doctrine. The scriptures themselves come to us as holy men were moved by the Spirit of God to write these things down for us so that we would have a record, something that we could refer to, so that Peter tells us in his epistle that he's going to make sure that we are reminded of these things. And how did he do that? He wrote the letters. He wrote his letters, his epistles to the churches so that we could be reminded of these things. And the ministry of the Word, especially as we come in a routine way to the church and for the ministry from the pulpit, it is not a ministry of new things. It's not intended to be new, extraordinary insights. It's intended to be reminding us of what the apostles have already said, what the prophets have written, what the psalmist has written. And all of these things are intended not to be a new thing, but rather the reminding of us of a very, very old truth. And these Christians in Thessalonica heard it with their ears, and they received it gladly in their hearts, and they welcomed it as the Word of God that it was. Now, as I was studying this passage, it reminded me of a, of a fun old song that I think you might enjoy here just for a moment. Let's see if I can get this going. Okay. Something going on here. Well, hopefully this is going to work. Oh, come on. I had this going. Forget it. I was going to play a few bars of Turn Your Radio On. Some of you may remember that song. Turn your radio on. I don't even know the lyrics, but it was a cool song. And it had to do with the idea that there can be a transmitter, but without a receiver, you won't get the signal. You won't get the message. You've got to turn your radio on and receive the Word of God. Like a radio receives the signal that's being transmitted from the radio tower. Now, it's old technology, right? But the idea is still the same. There's all kinds of radio waves in this room right now. And if we got a radio and we tuned it to certain stations, you could get some beautiful classical music or you could get some heavy metal. It's a matter of what you're tuning into. You know, but if you have your radio receiver tuned in to the Spirit of God and to receive the Word of God, then it's going to change your life. It's going to have an impact in, in your life. And so this is how people are converted from unbelief to faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Now, the gospel only works when someone believes it, as we see in 1 Thessalonians 2.13c, which also effectively works in you who believe. Now this reminds us of what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, where I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation 
for everyone who believes. Without the believing, we don't see or experience the power of God. Now, this is true whether it's for the Jew first or also for the Greek, the Gentile, outside of the Jewish community. But the gospel is only effective in the lives of those who actually believe it. How do you know if you believe it? Well, you know if you are willing to obey Christ, and specifically his command to love one another. By this all men will know, including you, whether you're his disciple, if you have love one for another. And so when we understand that, we can see that believing is not something that is just a matter of, of saying something. It's a matter of doing something. Faith works, and the way it works is by its moving us to the obedience of faith, and specifically of the single law of Christ's kingdom, which is love your neighbor as yourself. By this, the whole law is fulfilled in love for one another. And so that's why I feel comfortable saying to people, if you don't trust God, if you don't believe the gospel enough to actually obey Christ in his command to love one another, then you still don't really believe. Believing is observable because it results in that faith. So how does the word of God work in those who believe? It says that it effectively works. Well, what does God's word do in the hearts and the lives of those who believe God's word? Well, here's a short list. Number one, it saves us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. It blesses us. For speed, I'm just going to read what it does. I'll let you, uh, I'll give you this list afterwards if you like. I don't want you to get, uh, uh, burn your hands out here. It teaches us. It guides us. It counsels us. It revives us. It makes us fruitful. It grows us up. It warns us. It rewards us. And as they say in the commercial, but wait, there's more. It judges us. It sanctifies us. It purges us. It frees us. It gives us joy. It strengthens us. It makes us wise. It prospers us. It gives us hope. And this is not an exhaustive list. God's word works effectively in those who believe. And all of these things that are listed here, it's doing that in your life as you believe the word of God. But how does believing itself actually work? What is it about believing that saves us? And what is it about believing that allows all of these things in God's word to be activated in our lives? So how does faith work? I'm going to demonstrate with this chair. Now, this is a good sturdy chair. It looks sturdy, doesn't it? You're all sitting in one right now. Now, I can stand here and tell you that I believe in this chair. I have complete confidence in this chair. And you say, well, then why don't you sit down, Greg? Well, don't, don't rush me, you know. I, 
I admire this chair. I think this chair has a lot of uh, aesthetic value. It looks like it's been well engineered and designed. That's a good chair. But why don't I sit down? See, if I really believe that this chair is a good chair and that it's going to hold me, then I'm going to, I'm going to actually sit down. So here I go. How's that? <laughs> you see, faith is actually putting your weight on it. It's actually resting on it. It's, it's getting to that place where you're not really trusting in anything else. You're, you're putting everything onto that and counting on it. That's what faith is. And so if you really believe the gospel, you stop working to try to earn your salvation. If you really believe the gospel, you begin to uh, delight in doing what God tells you to do, knowing that he loves you. He has, his, he has your best interests at heart. If you truly believe the gospel, you begin to want to know what his commands are, not so that you can figure out a way around them, but so that you can embrace them and, and relish in them and rejoice in them, knowing that every command of God is for your good and for his glory. So when we believe God's word, we trust in it enough to put our full weight on it and to rest ourselves entirely on it alone. No props, no backup system, you know, nothing that we're going to count on when we get to stand before the Lord. We don't have anything to say except I trust the truth of your gospel that Jesus died and paid for my sins, rose from the dead on the third day, and is now forever my Lord, my King, my Savior. That's faith. That's what faith does. That's what faith is. And without that faith, all of the things on that list are latent and potential, but not actual. These things all become activated by faith, faith in God's Word. Now, the second thing we see about the Thessalonian Christians is they honored the saints by imitating them. In 1 Thessalonians 2.14a, we read, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea, in Christ Jesus. Now, imitation is the highest form, not of flattery, but of honor. When you truly uh, honor somebody, you will find yourself imitating them. I remember when I was going to Centerville Bible College, and we had a, a professor there who was especially uh, competent. And we, we respected him, we appreciated him, and we noticed over time that many of the, of the male students, no, not the female students, but the male students, began to grow the same mustache as this professor. And it was just looked a little crazy as these guys all come in and they've all got the same mustache as the, as the professor in the college has. And it was a subtle thing, but it was basically a way of saying, I really admire this guy. And you will become like what you admire. Admiration is a low-intensity form of worship. And so when we, when we admire somebody, we become like them over time. I think that's one of the reasons that married couples over time begin to look alike. They become 
They, if it's a good marriage, they just kind of become, they start looking like uh, salt and pepper shakers, you know, just look like a match set. Because they love one another, and they begin to just be more and more like one another in so many subtle ways. So the Thessalonians had not seen the churches in Judea uh, with their own eyes. There's no evidence that any of them went to see the church there. But Paul must have told them the stories of Stephen and Peter and John and others and how they had suffered at the hands of the Jews there in Jerusalem and how the church was scattered after the stoning of Stephen. And the church in Jerusalem, after seven years in Jerusalem of of quietly disobeying Christ to go and take the gospel to the nations, they were scattered by persecution. So persecution is not always just a disaster uh, that God didn't see coming. Sometimes it's something he allows in order to get us out of our comfort zone and out there where people need to hear the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1, the apostle Paul writes, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Now this is Paul is unique in this regard. He is the only apostle who calls us to imitate him. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. And he's always writing to Gentiles when he says this. And so he's saying to those he's led to Christ and planted in churches all around the Mediterranean area there, he's saying, I am the one that you can look to as an example of what it looks like to be a fully devoted believer follower of Jesus Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And we are all called to follow Paul's good example. This is not just to those churches that he wrote to. He's writing to us. And so in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 17, and then continuing in verse 20, brethren, join in following my example. And note those Whoso walk as you have us for a pattern. Paul's very intentional about living in such a way that others can follow him and adapt his approach to life. In verse 20, he says, For our citizenship is in heaven. That is the, the, the keynote, that is the, the core reality that makes Paul's example make sense. He's living for eternity. He's living as a citizen of heaven from which he says we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to return. So we're called to follow Paul's good example, and he is the only apostle who called us to specifically follow him. And I think we should. I have, I have no difficulty identifying with the Apostle Paul, not because I'm different from somebody else, but because I take his, in, his instruction here very much to heart. I want to live like Paul, as Paul lived like Christ. He is my, my example. Now, Paul warns us to not follow the bad examples, and there are many. And so in between these verses in Philippians chapter 3, we have verses 18 and 19 in which he writes, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping. Do you notice that Paul doesn't ever write about these people with anger? He writes about them with sorrow. 
And the same is true for the Jews now, when we're going to be looking at that. Paul does not have this sense of anger, even though he's the one being beaten up, he's the one being dragged out into the side, you know, out of town and stoned. He doesn't speak with anger, but he speaks with deep sorrow. Even to the point in Romans where he tells us, if I could, I would forego my own salvation in order that my brethren, the Jews, might be saved. That's not anger. That's a deep sorrow. Because he's so saddened by the fact that they are so close to the truth. They have so many privileges as the Jewish people, and yet they are so far from what those privileges were intended to deliver. They have rejected, like the, like the rich, the son of the rich man who, who simply runs away to live in, some, in poverty and who hates his father rather than loving and appreciating all the privileges he's enjoyed. He says, I write even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. I've referred to this before but you'll notice that the, the, in, the, the opposition within, this is within the, the community of what should be the church, okay? He's not talking about outsiders now. He's talking about people inside the church. And they are not enemies of Christ in their own minds. They're not enemies of Christ. I love Christ. Christ is, you know, he's the ultimate salesman. Christ is, is, the, is the ultimate good guy. He's, he's a great teacher, but they're enemies of the cross of Christ. They're enemies of the idea that they should ever be required to suffer anything for Christ. They're enemies of the command to take up your own cross and follow Jesus in a life of laying down your own rights, laying down your own comforts in order to be useful to God in bringing those who are lost to a saving faith in Jesus. This is not suffering for suffering's sake. This is embracing the cross of Christ. Now, I believe that that cross of Christ is the consequences of your voluntary obedience to a command that others around you might not feel is necessary. Okay, like going to missions. Oh, what do you mean going to a mission field? You've got, such, you've got your whole life ahead of you. You know, you've just gotten your degree. I mean, think of all the missionaries. You know, one comes to mind, Borden was one. He was the heir of the Borden Milk Company, you know, the dairy company. And he goes to the mission field. And people thought, what a waste of a life. He could have done so much good if he had just stayed in America and managed the wealth of his uh, family's estate. But no, he had to go to the mission field and ultimately die there. That's the cross of Christ. If you stub your toe, that's not a cross to bear, okay? That's just, that life happens. Do you know what a Calvinist says when he stubs his toe? I'm glad that's over, okay? <laughs> that is a joke, right? That is a joke. Well, he's weeping because they're enemies of the cross of Christ. And these are people who are part of the congregation of the church. And then he says this very frightening thing, whose end is destruction. These people are not saved. Whose God is their belly. They will sacrifice anything to satisfy their appetites. 
and whose glory is in their shame. The things that they should be ashamed of, they strut and boast in. And you see this in the church today. I'm going to go ahead and be specific. When you hear and see people talking about being king's kids and driving the nicest, shiniest new car and living in the biggest, nicest house and having the nicest clothes because you're a king's kid, because, you know, God wants you to prosper. People who say, well, you notice that Jesus was riding on a donkey and a donkey was the Cadillac of the day. That is garbage. That is the fulfillment of a prophecy, but it is not an evidence that Jesus was living in style. These are enemies of the cross of Christ. The idea that they would suffer anything for the cause of Christ does, does not enter into their thinking because they are all in it for what they can get in this life. Their God is their belly. They're glorying in their shameful luxurious life and if they can't maintain it they just quietly slink out and feel like they've been a failure as a Christian and these big faith teaching churches have a huge huge rate of people who quietly slip away because it's not working it's like a Ponzi a spiritual Ponzi scheme in which the the latest one coming in continues to live in the illusion that this is Christianity while those who have discovered it to be empty and stupid are quietly slipping away. Now, Paul sums it up in the phrase, who set their mind on earthly things. The idea is in the Greek that this is the exclusive concern. They set their, everybody's got to pay their bills. Everybody's got to pay their taxes. You know, we got to mow the lawn once in a while, right? But he's not talking about that. He's talking about people who live entirely for this life and with no thought for heaven and for eternity. And that's why Paul continues in this passage, but our citizenship is in heaven. I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you to live your life for eternity and not for time to live your life in such a way that you'll be glad you did when you get to heaven. To live your life in such a way that 10,000 years from now you will have no regrets as to how you invested this world time and energy and money in expanding and strengthening the kingdom of God. What makes it so difficult to bring about revival in Christ's church is that there are so many nominal believers, that means in-name-only believers in the church, who provide so many bad examples of the Christian life. When a new believer comes into a conventional, typical church today, rather than being encouraged to fan into full flame their zeal for the gospel, they're instead encouraged to tone it down and just sit back and watch, and eventually you'll realize what, what's really going on here. New believers are annoying in a church filled with nominal Christians. Far too many have only what Paul describes as a form 
of godliness. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 1 through 5, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of what is good. That means they make fun of those who would try to do what is right. Traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, if we put a period there, we might say, wow, I'm glad there's nobody like that in our church. (laughs) But Paul continues. And he writes, having a form of godliness, a form of godliness, a facade of godliness, maintaining the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people turn away. Now these are hard words, but these are the words that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, or to Timothy, and expresses again in Philippi concerning those whose God is their belly. These are truths that we need to be reminded of, and, and we want to fight against being a part of it. We don't want to be among these bad examples. And so turn away from the bad examples, and don't just turn away from it and try to be nothing. Start being a good example. You know, in the turning away from sin, we should turn toward what is right with the very same level or even greater enthusiasm than we once gave to our sinful lifestyle. And when we're willing to do that, the world will notice and our gospel will be adorned by the way in which we live. The third thing that we see is that they endured persecution faithfully. 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 14b. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen. The Jews were stirring up persecution in Thessalonica just as the Jews in Jerusalem and in Judea had been doing uh, from the beginning. You know, we are all inspired by the faithfulness of others, the stories of the faithfulness of others, and especially by the stories of how they endure under hardship. When we read of the lives of Christian martyrs in church history, it evokes in us the desire to also be faithful. Not that that we want to die, or even that we want to suffer. We just want to be faithful as they were faithful, if and when we ever have to suffer, and if and when we ever have to die. Now, if you're not uh, familiar with this organization, I encourage you to make contact with the voice of the martyrs. These people have made it their ministry to serve persecuted Christians around the world, and part of the way they do that is by telling their stories, getting the word out to the rest of the church as to what is going on in various places around the world. And so there are people being persecuted in all the nations that are represented here, in Central America, here in our hemisphere, 
but especially in Africa and in uh, the Arab areas and in the uh, China and North Korea and the, in the uh, Philippines. They call this the, uh, was it the 1020 window? Am I getting that right? 1040, 1040 the 1040 window, which has to do with longitude and latitude and around the world. Where are the persecutions going on? It's within this band that wraps its way around the globe. Much of it has to do with a false religion such as Islam or Buddhism or uh, communism. But it's the same thing around the world. People are being persecuted and often killed because they profess Jesus Christ as Lord and refuse uh, to be quiet about it. Now the Jews are a people to be very sad about, and Paul gets into that now. When Paul thinks of the persecution that came from the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea against the new Christians, he must have recalled his own leadership in that persecution. Paul never forgot how guilty he was of persecuting the early church before his conversion on the road to Damascus. Have you ever stopped to think, why was he on the road to Damascus? He was on his way to Damascus to arrest some more Christians and to take them back to Jerusalem and to have them punished, in some cases put to death. Now, these Jewish leaders, religious leaders, zealous uh, Jewish believers, not in Christ, but believers in the Jewish religion without Christ have rejected the word of God. You read the entire Old Testament and Jesus tells us it speaks of me. And they have rejected everything about their own scriptures that would point to Jesus. They have rejected Jesus himself. Jesus' response to these people, the scribes and the Pharisees, is to call them hypocrites. He writes here, For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And the result is, their rejection eventually leads to outright persecution. If they can't stop this Jesus movement that's getting started in Jerusalem uh, by just their uh, uh, pronouncements and their preaching they ultimately resort to violence. And so, number two, they persecuted the saints, the believers. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 15a, just as they did from the Judeans, speaking of the churches in, in Judea, they suffered just as the, the, the Thessalonians suffered just as the Christians in Judea suffered. And that these Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and the surrounding area killed both the Lord Jesus Christ himself as well as killing their own prophets. And now they are continuing to persecute us, speaking of Paul and Silas and Timothy and all of the other apostles. Now, Paul himself, we have to remember, was the leader of this persecution at the beginning. In Acts chapter 26, in verse 11, Paul writes, 
And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. Imagine the Apostle Paul compelling Christians to blaspheme and renounce Christ. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. That's why he was on the road to Damascus when Jesus appeared to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now there's something just amazingly ingenious about that question. In that single question, the Lord Jesus revealed to what would become the Apostle Paul the reality that every member of the church is a member of the body of Christ. Why are you persecuting me? Well, Lord, I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting them. But they are members of my body. The Apostle Paul is the one who brings the the reality of the body of Christ to light and shares it with the rest of the church through his letters. We are members of his body, members of one another. The hand shouldn't say to to the head, I have no need of you, right? So isn't it wonderful that in the very immediate contact with Paul, Jesus is revealing truth that will go on to become the foundation of his teaching in the future. Now, after Paul's conversion, this is interesting. It says in Acts 9, 31, and the churches throughout all of Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. So Paul is leading the persecution of the church. He's on his way to Damascus to to persecute the Christians. He is converted to Christ on the way to Damascus. And from that point on, there is peace among the churches. What does that tell us about how much of an influence he was having as the leader of the persecution? Without Paul, without Saul, the persecution subsides. So Paul then spent the rest of his life building up what he had once destroyed. And it took a while before the Christians were willing to trust him. He had a record. They were, they were thinking maybe this guy is just trying to get on the inside of the church and learn more about who we are and what we do and where we are. And then all of a sudden out comes the, the knives again and the swords. But no, Paul went on for the rest of his life to plant and build what he had once done everything in his power to destroy. Now Paul writes about the Jews, these Jewish leaders, that they please neither God nor man. They do not please God, and they are contrary to all men. Now, I think this is a reference to something that Jesus said. They thought they were pleasing God by killing the Christians. And Jesus said in John 16 and verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. Do you see that? This is a direct reference, I think, to this passage from John. 
Paul sees that what the Jews are doing is a fulfillment of Christ's prophecy of what would happen. And Jesus speaks specifically of this coming uh, through the synagogue. So we're dealing with the Jewish community. Now, today, this same mindset is found in Islam and in Buddhism, that, that killing a Christian is doing service to God, that somehow God is pleased when, when you uh, make life hard for the Christian or even when you uh, kill a Christian, that somehow that is admirable. Recently, uh, two young men were given uh, an honor award in North Korea. You know, it was like our you know, Medal of Honor here in the United States. And these two young soldiers were given uh, medals of honor because they had successfully assassinated a pastor in China. They had snuck into China and assassinated this, this pastor. And this particular pastor had successfully led over a thousand North Koreans to Christ and was continuing to support them and disciple them while they were still continuing to live in North Korea. And so the North Korean government had a great interest in finding this man and killing him. And they thought that they were doing service to their country by eliminating this man of God. The obsession to persecute Christianity by the Jews back then and by Islam today and other religions as well was and is driven by a false jealousy and by fear. You know, jealousy is often misunderstood. A lot of times people think that jealousy is a sin, and it is not always a sin. Sometimes it's misdirected. Sometimes it's misinformed. But jealousy itself is a good thing. We're told that our God is a jealous God. So what is jealousy? Is jealousy the same thing as envy? No. Jealousy is the concern that something or someone that rightly belongs to you is being wooed away or somehow taken by another to whom it does not rightly belong. Our God is a jealous God. And when he sees us flirting with the world, he is righteously jealous of us. And he will intervene to draw us back to himself and not allow the world to successfully draw us away. Now, when you have a, a person who is misinformed and they think, they think that somebody is trying to uh, uh, steal his wife away when all they're doing is just being neighborly, that's a problem. There are men who are paranoid. There are women who are paranoid. That means they're afraid of something that's not really happening. But as they say, it's not really paranoia if they really are trying to kill you, right? We are living in a world in which people do try to seduce their neighbor's wife. People do try to draw you away from what is right to what is wrong. And so, what are these Jews and the Islamic Muslim believers, what are they doing? They honestly think that we all belong to their religion and should be members of their religion. 
and if we're not, that we're being drawn away by Satan or by some other false religious faith, and therefore they think they are doing God's service by eliminating those who are the most influential within the Jesus movement, the Christian community. And that is why, in their minds, they're, doing the, they're the good guys. They're doing what's right. When a father in, a, in an Islamic family kills his own daughter as an honor, uh, suicide, you know, as an honor killing in order to, quote, protect the family name, he sees himself as the good guy who's being strict. The problem is he's living in a false religion. He's walking in according to a false map of reality. And because it's a false map, it takes him to places he should not go. And he feels good about going to these horrible places in his own mind, in his own heart. So we need to understand how this works. And that is why, rather than being angry at people, we need to feel deep sorrow for them. We need to pray for them, not just pray about them. We need to ask God to intervene in their lives. Because the truth is, the one who's doing the greatest amount of harm today could be the next Apostle Paul tomorrow. That's how our God works. And it can happen, even in the most horrible places around the world. Now, these Jews were continually opposed to the preaching of the gospel. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 16, we read, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So, the Thessalonians saw this opposition in their own city when they came to Christ. Let's, let's recall what happened in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17 and verses 5 through 8. But the Jews who were not persuaded, just before this we read that many in Thessalonica did believe. There were many Jews who believed. And there were some, there were many, actually it says some Jews who believed. There were many Gentiles who believed. And then there were many uh, women of noble families in Thessalonica who believed. Now think about what happens in marriage when your wife comes to Christ and you're still a pagan and you want to go to the local temple and do the things they do there. Not going to go very well, right? And so it says, those who were not, the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious. I never did finish. What is envy? It's not jealousy. Envy is when something that does not rightly belong to you is something that you want. It's like covetousness. It's something that is not rightfully yours, and yet you want it, and you're willing to fight others to get something that's not rightfully yours. So that's the seducer. That's the person who's trying to steal from somebody else. It's not really yours. God is never envious. But God is jealous. Okay? So keep that clear in your mind. God is a jealous God. But he has no need to envy. There's nothing out there that does not rightfully belong to him. He cannot be envious. And so these envious Jews 
took some of the evil men from the marketplace. Another way of saying that is he went and talked to a a street gang, a group of thugs, a, a professional criminal group, people who made their livelihood by doing things that were were illegal and, and immoral and wrong. They went out. These are these righteous Jews going out and hiring, <laughs> hiring a criminal gang to gather a mob. Can you imagine the scene? Here's a Jewish rabbi talking to the pierced and tattooed head of a street gang and saying, hey, I want you to go and organize a riot for me. What do you pay me? Well, we'll settle that, but we need you to go out there and make this happen. And so they went out into the city and they were crying out. They, they thought this through. They knew how they could create a false impression of what the Christians were about. <coughs> but there was a, always a little bit of truth to it. Remember that whenever the enemy tells a lie, the only s- successful lie is one that has at least some element of truth to it. And so they said, these who have turned the world upside down, have they turned the world upside down? Yes, they have been turning the world upside down. Well, they have come here too. And these are all contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying there is another king named Jesus. Is that true? Yes, it is true. Is this, in fact, a threat to Caesar's reign? No, because the Christians are going to honor legitimate government. They're going to be model citizens within the kingdom of the empire of Rome. They're, they're not, the only thing they're not going to do is they're not going to call Caesar Lord because there is one above him who is Lord. And it's in his interest to acknowledge that. But he doesn't. Not yet. So you see, the point is, they're twisting the truth. In order to twist the truth, you have to start with the truth. And that's what you're going to face. When people decide to target you for persecution, they're not usually going to come out with something that's just absolutely out of the blue. They're going to take something that is true, and they're going to twist it by questioning your your motives, which is what we saw Paul defending himself against in the first few uh, verses of this epistle. He was accused of being a charlatan, accused of being sexually immoral, accused of being in it for the money, remember? And he says, that's not true. You were there. You saw how we lived. But persecution usually begins with the twisting of something that is true. And so they troubled the crowd and they troubled the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So that's how persecution normally begins, by taking something that is true but twisting it into something evil. Now, let me give you, just in order to to bring you up to the moment, you are going to be accused of being a Christian nationalist if you believe that our nation would be better off if more people believed in Jesus and trusted him enough to obey him. You are going to be accused of being almost, you know, that close to being a Nazi because you think that Jesus should be Lord and that our nation is a Christian nation. How dare you? 
Don't you know there's a separation of church and state and only secular humanists are allowed to be uh, members of the, the government? Which, by the way, is a, a secular religion by its own description of itself. It is a secular alternative to all other theistic, scripture-based religions. It's an intellectual faith. And it's real. And it dominates our culture today. But they've gotten smart by not advertising the fact that they are, in fact, a religion. They even followed Paul to Berea. Notice in Acts chapter 17 and verse 10, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And then we have this wonderful story of how the Bereans were more noble than others, and they checked to see whether these things were true, and they believed. But it says then in verse 13, But when the Jews of Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. So they might have hired another gang in Berea somewhere. And then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea. Both Silas and Timothy remained there. But both Silas and Timothy remained there. So during Paul's absence from Thessalonica, while Paul and Silas and Timothy are no longer there, the persecution by the Jews and their hired thugs must have continued because Paul says, you suffered just, just like the, the Christians in Judea suffered. And you suffered by the same people. The Jewish leaders of the synagogue in, this, in your town organized a riot. They arrested Jason, dragged him into court, fined them, beaten them, and Paul says, you faithfully suffered through this persecution. Now, the Jews had finally hit their limit. You know, there is a limit to sin. Sometimes we think, well, I wish God would set the bar a little lower. I mean, we had a world war and a holocaust. That's pretty bad. But there is a limit. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 16b, it says, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. What is that referring to? Well, because there is a limit to sin. God is restraining. We're told that until the one who restrains is taken out of the way, then that man of, uh, of evil will be revealed. So there's something right now, and I believe it's the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit working through the people of God is like salt and light in a world that would otherwise be overwhelmed with corruption. This world is not as bad as it could be. And it will get that bad when the Christians and the Spirit of God are taken away. And all hell will break loose, literally. All hell will break loose in this world. Now, in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 16, we have the first record of this type of an idea. It says, but in the fourth generation, they, the children of Abraham, shall return there, or return here to the, to the land of, uh, of Canaan. It says, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. They haven't reached their limit yet. There's a point at which God is going to intervene, but he's not going to intervene 
prematurely. Now, I don't understand how all that works, but that is the way God works. I think it helps to realize that God is going to judge each and every one of us individually in eternity at the judgment seat of Christ. But there's very clear evidence in the scriptures and in all of history since the time of Christ that God judges nations in time and in history. And so what he does in nations such as Germany, which once had a wonderful reformation with Martin Luther himself leading that reformation, and the churches, the reformed churches being, Lutheran churches being planted all over Germany, and the German princes all acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the head of state, not the, the Pope. That nation turned away from what it once knew of God. Higher criticism began in Germany among the intellectuals there. The church began to back away from the proclamation of the gospel and began to devote itself to catering to the interests of the elite classes in Germany. And Germany had a world war under a, a very evil leader. And they lost that war. And then there was a Great Depression. And then there was a Nazi movement. And then the nation itself became an instrument of terror against the people of God, the Jews. Do you see what's going on? God judges nations in history. What happens to our nation if we forget God and walk away from him and, and begin to deny even the, the uh, evidence of the founding father's generation and their desire to be a nation set upon a hill, a light to the world? What happens when we try to forget all of that and deny that it had any validity and that everything we stand for is all evil? Does God step back and just watch and say, well, that's okay? If he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, then he will either judge our nation or apologize to Germany. And I don't think he's going to do that. And so we pray for God to bring revival. You recall that Sodom and Gomorrah would have been spared if there had been ten righteous in the city. So God is a God who Lot watches to see. He counts heads. He watches to see where is this thing going. And at what point have we reached the limit? In Matthew 23 and verse 31 we read, Therefore you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? This is why those particular Jews in that particular point in time and history will suffer punishment. But all of mankind who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and believe that he is the truly Son of God, that he died for the sins of the world, and that he rose from the dead, that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, everyone on this planet who does not believe that in their heart 
will also suffer eternal punishment. And so the Jews will suffer the eternal wrath of God for their sins, just as we, if we do not trust in Christ, will suffer eternal punishment for ours. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 16b, but the wrath has, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. This is so certain that Paul refers to it as though it has already happened. But what is he referring to? In all likelihood, he, is, he has in view the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD when the Jewish temple uh, is destroyed. But he could also, and I believe he does also have in view the judgment seat when God will separate the sheep from the goats, when God will cast the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the beast into a bottomless pit, however that works, and there will be peace. There will be peace when these persecutors are gone. This wrath is only inevitable if a person continues in unbelief. This is not an anti-Semitic message. Gentiles will be punished just as much as any Jewish unbeliever will be punished. But the punishment is real, and it's coming. And you are advised to flee from the wrath to come. Like Paul and other Jewish believers, any sinner, whether Jewish or Gentile, can believe and repent and be saved. And that is only by the power of the drawing of the Holy Spirit, the Heavenly Father drawing them to repentance, the Son of God owning them as his own child. And so the application, as we close, will you be like the good example of a believer who receives the Word of God, which is your salvation? Will you honor the saints of God by imitating them and becoming more and more like those that you ought to admire in church history and alive around you here today. That's your sanctification. Will you persevere under persecution? That's part of your glorification, to be a part of the, the display of God's goodness. Or will you be like the bad example of the unbelievers who reject the word of God, which is rebellion, who persecute the saints of God, which is wickedness. Or will you ultimately, and you will then ultimately face eternal punishment, which is damnation. So I'm pleading with you, choose life. Choose to be a good example of a true believer in Christ. Don't be casual about this. Be very intentional. Pursue God and he will be there for you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. If you find yourself feeling that you're far from God, who moved? Go back. Go back to where you last felt close to God, in your heart, maybe in your place. Where, wherever you got off the track, Whatever, wherever you recognize was a wrong turn, go back. Go back to that place and begin walking on the truth, true path again. 